Caitlin, here we are. Our last episode of 2022. The season went by really fast. I can't believe it's Christmas already. Do you have any last minute festive plans? Uh, Yeah, I actually do have a few things lined up this week. I'm supposed to go to the New York Botanical Gardens light show, Mm. which seems cool. And then I'm going to get to go to my church's Christmas Eve service for the first time ever. So that'll be fun. It's also supposed to snow this week. Home Alone 2 promised me that like New York was always a winter wonderland in December, but it's actually pretty rare for it to snow here. And as it turns out, Donald Trump doesn't live in the Plaza Hotel, which is probably for the best. Lies. A movie of lies. It's a really bad movie. I love that movie. It's literally just Home Alone. Yo, set yeah. In a different, like, it's exactly the same plot. It <laughs> <laughs> just, like, swapped out the old people. <laughs> From Religion News Service, this is Saved by the City a podcast from two single Christian women making our way and making memories in New York. I'm Caitlin Beatty. And I'm Roxy Stone. This week is also Hanukkah, which living on the Upper West Side, it is truly a mix of Christmas and Hanukkah everywhere you look. Like, in the stores, but also how apartment lobbies are decorated and when you look in windows. Right. Living pretty much in any neighborhood in New York and maybe especially on the Upper West Side, you realize this is why we say happy holidays and not Merry Christmas. Yes. <laughs> it's it's not a it's not a culture war thing. It's like a I want to be kind to my neighbors and not everybody celebrates Christmas. Yeah, I feel like that's really when I realized that moving here, I was like, that felt like a theoretical thing. Like, oh, yeah, don't wish the clerk at the store Merry Christmas. But in Colorado, they were probably celebrating Christmas. But then when I moved here, I was like, oh, you might very well not be celebrating Christmas. Right. It suggests that it's only a culture war thing if you are coming from this position of privilege where you kind of can assume that everybody Mm -hmm. should say Merry Christmas or does celebrate it. and. When you're moving into a space of religious diversity, you're having to shed, as perhaps we have done or I have done in moving to New York, a presumption of normativity, a presumption that like everybody does this the way that I did this growing up or the way I'm going to do it this week. Right. And this idea that if they don't or if they get mad that you would say Merry Christmas instead of Happy Holidays, that there's like a hostility there or like an aggression against your Christianity. And it's like, well, when you get here, you actually realize like, no, it's maybe even the opposite. Like it's actually just really sensitive to not assume Mm -hmm. the people around you have the same religions as you because they very well may not. I've actually never experienced hostility toward my Christian faith in New York, like despite what people might assume New York is like. I think when you live in a place of true religious diversity, you're less likely to fall into this false culture war binary of the secular people against the (laughs) religious conservatives. It's like, actually, there are a lot of different religious traditions here. Some people here celebrate Christmas. Some people celebrate Hanukkah. Some people celebrate both. Some people celebrate both. I actually went to a Shabbat dinner on this past Friday. My friend that I know from church, her partner is Jewish. And so like they're an interfaith couple. My friend jokes now that she's like a Jewish housewife because she actually like made the challah bread for the Shabbat dinner, which is, I think, very impressive. And so did everyone else who was there. But um, 
But yeah, I mean, we've I've gone over there for a couple of them and it's really a fun time. And it was, you know, we were like having this Shabbat dinner and, you know, reading through the different um, moments in the dinner. And then also, also there was like a Christmas tree in the corner, you know, so it was just like mm. a fun, a fun mix, you know, and they're as a couple trying to like work out what that looks like to be, you know, an interfaith couple and respect each other's traditions. Mm-hmm. And I actually, I actually really love the Shabbat dinner for a lot of reasons, but uh, there are some great moments in it where I just really appreciate how much it pushes against like the rhythm and the pace of modern life, you know? I mean, this is very mm. obvious, for, but it's really striking when you go and it's like the slowness of the meal and the moments where you're thinking about if you're practicing Shabbat all day on Saturday, like all of the, all of the aspects of, of what it means to really take a Sabbath and how countercultural a true Sabbath is. I mean, we've talked about this before, I think, but just, but even, you know, at an, at an extreme, like not using electricity, or I think one of like my favorite parts of if people are really observing it is like not buying anything or like not requiring anyone else to work on the day that you're taking a Sabbath, which I, you know, this, these are just like very anti-capitalist ideas, which yay. (laughs) (laughs) My favorite slogan is yay (laughs) anti-capitalism. Yeah. I mean, what you're describing is seeing, I mean, obviously Judaism and Christianity are there, there are, there are specific connections historically within the two traditions. They're also separate traditions. Mm-hmm. But what you're observing and benefiting from is seeing how another tradition honors time and sacredness around time and space that that helps you reframe your own life in a beneficial yeah. or your own spirituality in a beneficial way. And that that is not a threat. <laughs> like that doesn't make you less of a Christian mm-hmm. to see how and participate in a Jewish Sabbath. If anything, it enhances your own understanding of Sabbath and your desire to practice it better. Yeah, it feels inspiring and generative rather than threatening, as you said. It seems like the editors of the New York Times knew that we were planning this episode this week and they wanted to help us out because uh, they published a really interesting article titled A Look Inside New York's Swirling Kaleidoscope of Faiths. I really appreciate that they did that for us. Thank you, New York Times. The article opens with this great paraphrase of a quote from Milan Kundera that New York is maximal diversity in minimum space. Mm. (laughs) We feel the minimum space often. (laughs) And what that means is that we can't really go anywhere in New York without seeing religious symbols and how other people practice their religion from around the globe. So of course, this connects to the ethnic diversity that is represented in New York as well. The article cites a PRRI study that shows that three of the city's boroughs, Manhattan, Brooklyn, and Queens, are among the 10 most diverse counties in the country, and Staten Island and Bronx are not far behind. I also appreciated that the article emphasized that New York is not the religious melting pot. Like you might think, mm. oh, with with this many people from all these different traditions trying to coexist, we're all just going to kind of downplay our differences and become 
But the colors would all blur together on the kaleidoscope. Right. And instead, if anything, the colors and their differences are accentuated even more that because of the religious diversity here, New Yorkers are empowered, the article says, to express their faith and share its treasures and ideals in a multitude of ways. Yeah, which I, you know, I think they they use Queens as a great example of that because there are people from like 300 different languages and all these different countries. And you've got like a Hindu temple and a Jain temple and Buddhism and Sikhism. And like, it's all happening in this one borough, again, in again, minimum amount of space, which I know is not like completely unique to New York in the world, but it is really fascinating because you think about like so many places in the world where religion is such a flashpoint of tension. And Mm -hmm. I know it's not like kumbaya in New York and we're all just like getting along perfectly, but a minimum amount of space, a lot of potential tension and it's, it's going okay. Yeah. And the reality is that the United States is actually becoming more like New York. It's becoming more religiously pluralistic and with that mm-hmm. change is, of course, going to come tensions. And we've already read about and seen some of those tensions throughout the country. And now is this moment where we're becoming more religiously diverse as a country to gain wisdom and understanding. And mm-hmm. maybe especially as members of the majority religion to, to, to say, I need to understand my neighbors better so that I can live well among them and with them, not to... dominate them or make sure that they know their place. Or be afraid of them. Yes. This is why we're particularly excited about our guest today, Simran Jeet Singh. Simran is a fellow New Yorker, also a fellow transplant. He moved here from Texas as a young adult, but as someone who follows the Sikh faith tradition, his experience of New York City is a little different than ours. I had this like utopian vision of New York City that was like, oh, it's going to be, it's going to be perfect for me. Like there will never be any any racism I face again on the basis of my, my religious appearance. And of course that's not true. And when I look back at it now, it's such a funny thing to have thought. Simran is executive director of the Aspen Institute's Religion and Society Program, an RNS columnist and author of the book, The Light We Give, How Sick Wisdom Can Transform Your Life. Our conversation with Simran is coming up just after the break. Religion News Service is an independent, award-winning source of global reporting on religion, spirituality, culture, and ethics. And right now we're in the middle of our annual Newsmatch campaign. As a nonprofit newsroom, RNS journalists depend on your support. To donate now, visit religionnews.com. And if you like what we're doing at Save by the City, let us know. Throw us a rating or a review, which goes a long way toward helping get the word out about the show. We have a new bit of fan mail from Anita in Australia. She said, for the longest time, I didn't know that there were other female Christians out there who thought like me independent, believing that God truly loves everyone, irrespective of their walk in life. So thank you for putting yourselves out there and speaking truth. Aw, thanks, Anita. Everybody be like Anita. Email us at sbtcpodcast at religionnews.com. We want to hear from you. I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. This week on The State of Belief. I felt like if anyone was going to be speaking up, 
It was going to have to be somebody like me. Faithful conversations around sexual orientation and gender identity in Texas with Aubin Peterson of Another Story. Also, getting ready for the 2024 vote with Adam Friedman, organizing an election strategist at Interfaith Alliance. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. Looking back, I realized that interfaith work or conversations were not something that I really heard about in my church or in other contexts, and not necessarily because we wouldn't have been open to it, but because we didn't have to be (laughs) thinking about it. Um, Where I grew up was generally culturally and religiously homogenous. And so it wasn't really until leaving there and even, I mean, gosh, even leaving the Chicago suburbs, recognizing Mm -hmm. that it's convenient or a privilege to not have to even think about the relationships between different religions unless you're in a place where you're no longer in a dominant place of cultural power. Yeah. I mean, where I grew up, I think occasionally the Catholics and Protestants worked together on stuff. And that was a big deal. <laughs> maybe maybe someone from the Mormon church would join. Um, that was that the was, interfaith. It yeah. Was... That was about it. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, that was it. Uh, where I like literally in the towns that I grew up in, in Eastern Colorado. Once I got to college, I, mm-hmm. I think that was like the first time I really was like, oh, you know, I had an exposure to other religions besides the various forms of Christianity. It's a little cringy to admit this now, but in college, I I got a uh, religious studies minor, um, which was like an interdisciplinary minor. And it was, it included classes in, in various different religious traditions. And you had to take, you know, a minimum number of across the religious spectrum. And I, <laughs> my motivation for doing that was not great at the time, which was, I really wanted to like learn about these other religions so I could best know how to convert people and evangelize, which my professors quickly talked me out of that, which is good. I mean, not that I told them that, but I, I'm really glad I got that minor. And in a lot of ways, it was like an incredible learning experience for me um, to these other religions and to like humanizing other mm-hmm. traditions and appreciating these lessons and wisdom traditions and the beauty and rituals and all of that of other religions and even to be drawn to some of, you know, I, I love religion. Like, and I felt drawn to these traditions that were similar to me, like seeking this ineffable, seeking like how to define the undefinable and experience transcendence. And yeah, it was a it was a an eye-opening experience for me. Yeah, I mean it strikes me and I uh maybe you don't want to do this but I will do this to give you a little bit of credit thinking back to being an 18-year-old. <laughs> you know, this is not a this is not a time when a lot of us come in to college with a lot of nuance. Mm. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. Coming in with a posture of I'm learning so that I can change somebody's mind versus mm-hmm. I'm learning for its own sake because I want to understand how other people, how other image bearers, that's a Christian term, but I'm a Christian. So that's the term that comes to mind. Um, how other people are seeking God mm-hmm. in their specific contexts and saying, 
I can honor and value the beauty in other traditions for its own sake, not as like a, and I also have to change their mind and how they go about. Right. It just seems like a more open-handed posture that you ended up walking away with. Yeah. And I think it's tricky, you know, um, religions have really specific things to say about truth and they don't, they are often in conflict with each other. (laughs) And in Christianity has a, a belief system that doesn't, you know, that, that actively says like, this is, this is what we believe is universal truth. And, um, you know, I think it's, it's, it's a, it's a tricky posture to live in where you can appreciate and admire other religious traditions and learn from them while also being able to stay solidly in your own tradition that has an exclusive nature to it. Right. And I think that has become actually easier for me speaking personally to at once live into a tradition that has exclusive truth claims mm-hmm. about the nature of God and also respect the particularity and the exclusive truth claims of other faiths, the more confident I am or secure I am in my own faith identity. Right. I think that's true. I also think, I hope that's beginning to change. Working at RNS at Religion News Service, um, which listeners you may have heard of as an award-winning source of global religion reporting. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I have learned a lot working there, and I have also really appreciated that RNS covers the religions on their own and with the specificity and particularity of their religions. And it's not always with like an agenda of like, we're all going to get along and make a peaceful, perfect world together, which would be nice. But that's not, you know, that's that's not like the goal. Religion News Service's goal has, has an interfaith component to it in the sense of like education and humanization. And mm-hmm. and I think the more that we know and learn about each other, the more that we can find our common ground while also being very different. And that common ground might be a hope for like a good, safe community or mm-hmm. economic stability or, you know, I mean, there's there's a lot of ways that interfaith work, I think, can can work to better communities without being like, oh, we all have to agree on truth claims about God. Yes, it seems like what you're describing or part of the goal in reporting accurately and respectfully on different faith traditions is the common good, which I realize (laughs) maybe, I I don't know, is it exclusively a Christian term? It is, it has been overused arguably, but you know, something like, um, a healthy, flourishing, functioning society where people feel safe and cared for and, um, having a seat at the the table of cultural power and not marginalized mm-hmm. and not having to fear violence or threats, mm-hmm. it, you know, that feels like a bare minimum of yes. what, of what we should all be striving toward. Yes. I, I've been thinking about this episode this week. Um, and there's a lot to say um, about this. And, but I was thinking about this episode and we had an article come out this week about implicit sort of inadvertent anti-Semitism that can creep into certain Christian traditions and readings of scripture. And mm-hmm. this this one was particularly around um, Advent scriptures and the ways that there's sort of this implicit sense that like Judaism got it wrong because they didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And so it's actually like an obsolete religion or it should be because mm. they should have just all followed Jesus. And and you know that that kind of language around Judaism can often get brought into our conversations around like 
the Pharisees and yes, you know, all of these different, uh, the Jews killed Jesus. I mean, and that's like that, that those are things that I never thought about as a kid as being like dangerous, but then you start to realize like, wow, that was language that was like adopted by the Nazis. And that language can, can perpetuate real harm in the world. Mm -hmm. And it can just kind of be lurking right there without us realizing it. And I think that's the kind of important educational work that I'm talking about too with RNS, where we can challenge and confront those things in our own religions that, you know, are maybe harmful without us even realizing it. Yes, it feels really valuable to examine the historical roots of our faith and to see ways that it has borne bad fruit, whether we grew up recognizing those historical roots or not. Yeah, it feels like the work of the moment or maybe of many moments in the future too, but it, it, it feels important. And it feels like if we're really going to like create the pluralistic society that benefits a diverse community, that we have to do that work. Our guest today has been doing the work and has also been helping others of us do the work too. Simran Jeet Singh is author of the new book, The Light We Give, How Sick Wisdom Can Transform Your Life. He's also a columnist at Religion News Service and just an all-around great guy. Hey, Simran. Hey, Simran. Oh, glad to be with you all. Fun to hang out. Yeah, thanks for being here. So one thing that all of us have in common is that we are transplants to New York City. I understand, Simran, that you grew up in Texas and in some ways had a kind of standard all-American childhood and then, of course, in other ways did not. So because so much of what Roxy and I talk about on the show is how New York has shaped our faith. How would you say that New York has has shaped your faith? Yeah, you know, I so I, I listen to y'all's podcast, and I, and I really love it. I, Thanks. I just said y'all. Oh. That's my that's my Texan coming out. Um, so I'm, I'm a fan of the podcast. And when you invited me on, I was like, man, what am I going to say that's actually interesting? So I've been I've been preparing for this question, um, and I have I have <laughs> I have two two reactions that I think might be interesting. Um, one is because I moved here from Texas, I had this big dream, you know, the stereotype of Texas is that it's super racist. And, you know, as somebody who grew up with a turban and a beard and and the racism I faced, I had this like utopian vision of New York city that was like, oh, it's going to be, it's going to be perfect for me. Like there'll never be any, any racism I face again on the basis of my, my religious appearance. And of course that's not true. And when I look back at it now, it's such a funny thing to have thought. Right. But I I mean, I just didn't, I just totally didn't know what it would be like to live here. And so I I think part of the the reality check and having to accept that people are messed up to one another everywhere has really been, it's it's been transformative for me in some ways Mm. to, to not live in this dream world as if there is some perfect place where we could all escape to and everything would be fine. Mm-hmm. And and having to accept the reality of, of difficulty uh, and human imperfection has actually profoundly shifted my religious experience and, and practice of spirituality. Because once once you accept that, you really have to confront the difficulty head on and say, I can't hide from this. There's no escape, really. I have to figure out a way to, to face 
the challenges that are going to come my way. So, so that's one. Mm-hmm. And, and the second one, and this one is also kind of embarrassing to admit in retrospect, but also small country boy comes to the big city. <laughs> uh-huh. and, and, um, and, you know, I, I grew up in a place where there weren't any people, many, many at all, of uh, people of my religious background. And, and so it was very isolating in many ways. My mm-hmm. friends who were also sick were kind of scattered around the country. And I know some of the biggest sick populations are based in New York City. Mm-hmm. And so I had this really uh, ridiculous vision of like, I would move here and all of a sudden I would be best friends with everyone who looks like me, you know, mm-hmm. and not really thinking about the fact that internally all communities are diverse and there are going to be people who you like and people you don't like and people who like you and people who don't like you, uh, people who have similar interests and things that they care about. And and so one of the funny experiences for me was moving here and having this expectation that, you know, all the guys who I would meet would be like my brothers growing up and we'd all yeah. care about the same things. We'd all see the world in the same way. And, um, and it totally wasn't true. Um, we didn't even often have the same core values, which you mm-hmm. might... You know, in isolation expect of people mm-hmm. you share a religious tradition with. And so that was a wake up call for me to, to, to really start to understand that my experience of my sick faith was my experience and, and not the mm-hmm. same as everyone else's necessarily. And there, there's a little bit of um, humility that comes with that to recognize that, you know, you, you have your own version, uh, but everyone else also has their own version and, mm-hmm. and you know, you don't, you, don't, you don't ever get to tell someone they're right or they're wrong based on how they live their lives. So those are two. Those are the two that I prepared uh, in excitement for this for this conversation. <laughs> Thank you. Um, well, I'm glad we started with a, a question that you'd already thought about. So for our listeners, many of them are probably not familiar with the Sikh faith. So how about a short primer on your faith and like what the Sikh faith is all about? Yeah, sure. So one of the interesting things about the Sikh tradition is that it's one of the world's largest. It's the fifth mm-hmm. largest religion in the world, but at least in, in the United States, most people don't know about right. it. Uh, the founder's name is Guru Nanak. Mm. And, and his basic argument is if you start to see oneness in everyone, then you can't possibly uh, discriminate uh, on any basis. Uh, and also, if you start to see oneness in everyone, then you start to cultivate in your heart a feeling of love for the world, and the natural expression of that is service. And so mm-hmm. those three principles, I think it's, you know, the, the basis of, of oneness, a, a feeling of love, and then the expression of that through service. Uh, those are the three core teachings of Sikh philosophy that I think create a really nice logic, I think intellectually, but also in terms of living life, it, it creates a really beautiful daily practice that is both focused on internal spiritual cultivation, but also uh, social contribution and and service Mm -hmm. at the same time. Mm -hmm. You know, you talk a lot about the ways that 9-11 had a huge impact on your life. I think one of the things that you said in the book that struck me was that it was really a time when you learned that it wasn't enough to be non-racist. You had to be anti-racist. So talk a little bit about that distinction and why that became sort of a driving force in your life at that time, but has continued to be. Yeah. I mean, I mean, for me, for me, it very much came, uh, without, without the the vocabulary of anti-racism, as I share in the book, it was, it was through experience where, Mm -hmm. um, growing up, my, my parents had always pushed us to, to ignore the hate that came our way. And it was, um, 
I mean, it was, it was constant and it was, it was annoying Or <laughs> my parents, you know, we'd be, we'd be just like minding our own business, walking down the street and someone would yell something nasty at us. And like, you know, we're kids, we want to respond yeah. and say something in return. And our parents would always just be like, let it go, let it go. And, um, you know, in, in a lot of ways, you could see how that's character building. Um, you could see how that is more protective. Um, you could see how, you know, refusing to escalate a situation ensures your own safety. So like a lot of this makes sense. And so it was our approach, at least for the most part. We, we didn't really get in fights or fight back um, or, or shout back or whatever. We kind of became comfortable with it. And, you know, you might describe it as developing a thick skin so that you don't real like these these kinds of things bounce off of you. And then um, the real shift for us came um, after 9-11, as I mentioned, the, the, the hate violence that targeted uh, a number of communities, including mm-hmm. the Sikh community. It got real and it got intense. And four days after 9-11 uh, was the first hate crime murder uh, of, a, of a Sikh man in Mesa, Arizona. Mm-hmm. Uh, just like a lovely human being, a horrible, a horrible murder. And, you know, just one of these situations where somebody's racist views were so out of control that they, they ended up just killing someone um, because, <laughs> because they couldn't handle themselves. I mean, it's just terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm 18 at the time and I listened to this and, and I'm thinking about this and trying to figure out how to respond And this was the first time that I really realized that if I didn't start being proactive uh, about um, addressing racism, then our family would continue to be at risk. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we already felt under threat, like the the violence was real, our lack of safety was real. And so it didn't, I mean, honestly, it didn't really, it didn't feel like a choice. It didn't feel like I had the choice to say, I'm going to ignore this. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's just something that I, Personally, I mean, even as an 18-year-old, it's not like I could accomplish all that much, uh, but I just felt like I had to do something. And, mm-hmm. and that's what I describe in the book and, and understand in my life as the moment where I moved from being non-racist to anti-racist. To me, it's, it's just a simple distinction between your willingness to show up and, and whether you're going to be proactive or you're just going to stand mm-hmm. on the sidelines and, and let things happen. Mm-hmm. And talk a little bit about how that anti-racism work has expanded in your own life to address other communities in the United States that are recipients of hatred and violence and racist attitudes. For example, you've really leaned into a conversation about the killing of unarmed Black people in America, especially in the last couple of years. So talk about, you know, initially, it's clear that that anti-racism work and choosing to show up had a direct and immediate application for you and your family and your community. But talk about how that has expanded out to include other communities that are under threat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, the, the first the first moment I really started thinking about this was uh, in those few days after 9-11, um, because at that moment, uh, the Sikh community had a really uh, important choice to make. And that was, are we going to ensure our safety by distinguishing ourselves from Muslims uh, mm-hmm. in this country and, and helping Americans direct 
their anger towards a different community? Or are we going to approach it a little bit differently and take mm-hmm. on more hate ourselves, but stand in solidarity with Muslims? And and I listened to a number of Sikh leaders during that time. Mm-hmm. And it was, I mean, in retrospect, um, I'm so grateful for for those conversations and having the chance to to really just observe them. Because I think intuitively, especially as a parent now, the, the obvious answer is do whatever you can to protect your kids, right. like get that safety. That's the most important thing. And and as I listened to, to these leaders uh, discussing options, they, they said two things that really stuck out to me. One is the ethical thing to do, the right thing to do is to stand in solidarity. And that was, that was a really clear uh, decision for them. But, but part of the conversation also that really stuck with me was by deflecting hate to another community, we're not addressing the issue at its core and it's just gonna come back and bite us down the right. line, right? It's gonna come back to us. And, and, and part of the arguments that people were giving to support that were historical, uh, giving examples from, from Sikh history and American history and other, other you know, models that we've seen. And part of their answers were, were very much um, guided by their their lived experiences of knowing different communities that have been targeted, and so it was a really powerful moment for me to recognize. And you know, in, in Sikh philosophy, we we talk about it as sarbadapala. It's the upliftment of all humanity, and, and we talk about this. I mean, it comes up in our daily prayers. Uh, we ask for the upliftment of all humanity, and there's, you know, at least in our worldview, no no community. Going back to this concept of oneness. No community has exclusive claim uh, to to divinity or anything else to the world. I mean, take take whatever you want. No, no one has more access or more privilege than anyone else, or at least they shouldn't. And and goodness and happiness is for everyone. And and that's the teaching. And so for me, I've really tried to live into that. Whether it's you know on the basis of anti-black racism or on the basis of religious marginalization, that's what we work on in my current role at the Aspen mm-hmm. Institute, whether it's on the basis of gender discrimination. I mean, there, there are so many ways in which we have figured out how to divide ourselves and hurt one another. And for me, ensuring that we all have equal opportunities to thrive is is what it means to be a good sick. Mm-hmm. You write in the book about the roots of America's racism being clearly in religion specifically in Christianity. (laughs) Talk a little bit about that. And from your perspective, what Christians need to be doing now in light of that history and what you've seen Christians doing well in that respect. Yeah, I I appreciate the question. I I think especially for this podcast and and your audience, um, it's a very real question. I know, I know Mm -hmm. you've approached it in different ways before. I mean, you know what I'll say, and you know, I'm, increasingly comfortable being provocative. So I, I, will, I, will, I will do that here. Um, Go for it. You know, no, please provoke our audience. <laughs> provoke us. So, so here's, here's something that I've been thinking about that, that I think is super interesting. The way that we've come to understand the relationship between Christianity and white supremacy, between Christianity and racism, has been almost backwards, right? We, we have come to think, I mean, the, the narrative we often tell ourselves is racism exists in America and then Christians have become complicit with it. And so our mm. 
our focus should be how do we disentangle, like how do we take Christianity out of American racism again, right? How do we, how do we separate ourselves from, I mean, I'm, I'm including myself in the, in the first person, I'm not Christian, but, but I'm American and this is a big American conversation, right? Mm-hmm. How do we remove and disentangle Christianity from American racism? And historically speaking, it's actually the opposite, right? Mm. Christianity comes first and gives birth to American racism. And, you know, it's not so simple as to say every Christian is an American racist, but it is historically true that Christianity is not just what permissions American racism, but also develops the logic and the structures for it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm not coming in here being like, Christianity is the worst religion ever and we need to burn it down. Uh, But I am coming in here as a historian and saying, Mm -hmm. if we don't understand the problems that we're trying to deal with, then we're never going to come up with the right solution, right? Like you go to a doctor, they don't give you the medicine first. They diagnose you, right? They they Mm -hmm. do the diagnostics. They figure out what the issues are. And once they have an accurate sense, then they can give you an accurate remedy. And so for me, what what is the important first step? I mean, I think it's becoming honest with ourselves about who we are, right? And and I, I know that when it comes to racism, people quickly feel like they're being attacked individually, right? Like, mm-hmm. and, and if I say, this is something that's part of American Christian history, then American Christians might feel singled out and say, but I didn't do anything. And I think, right. I think having the courage and the humility to step away and be like, this isn't about me, mm-hmm but it also is about something that I'm a part of. Yeah. Right. Uh, I didn't create this problem, but maybe there's something that I'm a part of uh, mm-hmm. that needs to be part of the solution. And, and I think mm-hmm. that to me is, is the honesty and the courage and the humility we all need as, as a collective to be able to start tackling some of these issues. Mm-hmm. That was a great level of provocation for our audience. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. It was provocative, but not flame emoji, burn it all down. So some gentle yeah. poking. <laughs> um, where have you seen Christians doing this? Well, I mean, you partner with and work with a lot of Christian leaders. Where are you seeing some real honest reckoning that you think is, is making a difference? Where do you see that happening? You know, let, let me start with indigenous scholars, many of whom are Christian or identify as Christian mm-hmm. in some way, they're, they're, they're in a tough position, right? They have the task of having to understand what it means to be Christian in this country while also having to understand what it means to have been debilitated and decimated mm-hmm. by Christianity. Mm-hmm. And, and so some of those people, you know, the people who I've been really learning from, Mark Charles was the first person who really introduced me to some of this history that I, I had yeah. never encountered before, despite having grown up in the States, despite uh, having a PhD in history from Columbia. Like I, I'd never heard of it. It's so embarrassing, but that's that's where we are. So I think indigenous scholars are really uh, doing a fantastic job. Caitlin Curtis is another mm-hmm. one who sometimes writes for RNS. The other place where I think there are some really interesting conversations are in circles of racial justice and religion. Mm-hmm. A lot of the people who are writing and speaking on these issues are black. And again, they have the unenviable position yeah. of having to grapple with Christian history while also having to grapple grapple with anti-black racism and how it's created systems of, you know, chattel slavery or 
the three fifths compromise or Jim Crow or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So those are those are two. But 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 a third place that I think is really important for us to see modeling of what it looks like to be honest about our histories is among white Christians. And and Robbie Jones is a good example mm-hmm. um, of someone who has grown up in this tradition. And it's been really interesting to to watch him. I mean, as a friend, but also through his writing, yeah. uh, to go through the process of of starting to ask really, really uncomfortable questions about something that he really loves, yeah. and seeing its imperfections, and 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 trying to hold the entire system accountable. So, so I think people like him, Serene Jones's book, um, her memoir, I think is a, a, another fascinating look into these issues and, and you sort of follow her journey too. But I think, you know, for me, there's something about the genre of memoir that mm-hmm. makes this more accessible um, because it is a journey for a lot of people and you're not going to fix all these problems overnight and you're not even going to change your own perspectives overnight. But I think seeing other people go through the process um, gives you, I mean, it gives me inspiration that like, yeah. I would love to be that introspective and thoughtful and, and grow, uh, throughout the course of my life in the way that some of these people I've seen, you know, have, have really done so in a, in a really beautiful way. A lot of your work, Simran, is in forming conversations and alliances among leaders of different faith communities, um, interfaith cooperation, I'm just speaking for myself. I don't know if this is true of Roxy as well, but interfaith communication and collaboration was not a strong value in the Christian community. <laughs> not, not if it didn't come with some evangelizing. Yes. <laughs> Fine to begin with, but don't end with just interfaith conversation. There needs to be an ask at the end. Um, and that is not true of all Christian communities, but I think no. a lot of Christian communities in America, interfaith is kind of a bad word. So what are some of the barriers that you encounter in trying to engage Christians in interfaith work? And then how can Christians show up better as partners and allies in interfaith work? Oh man, I did not, I did not anticipate this question and I am so excited uh, to, (laughs) to answer it. Well, first of all, there's, there's so many problems uh, within the interfaith world. Right. And so um, you all will know a bunch of them. Your audience will know a bunch of them. I won't, I won't get into what I think is more obvious, but I'll share one that I think is also provocative. Let's start with the experience that um, for many Christians, interfaith is not a, a, a serious value. Part of the reason for that is when you come from the dominant stream of society in whatever way, you don't need you, you don't need right. the other people around you to to legitimize you in some way to share their power. Like you're you're already in the position of power. I think I think part of our challenge in the interfaith space is we presume it to be an even playing field. Um, we expect that it is what it what it presents itself as, which is an opportunity Mm. for everyone to show up as they are um, and to have equal footing. And then the reality is that's not true, right? It wasn't true Mm. when I was growing up in Texas and I would show up to these events and there were uh, usually 10 different types of Christians, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. usually Protestant, uh, Mm -hmm. one Catholic. Right. I was in San Antonio, (laughs) so maybe a couple of Catholics. Um, One Muslim, maybe one Jew, maybe, and then one other, mm-hmm. right? And that's that's sort of standard, right? The other might be Buddhist or Hindu or Sikh, but it's like something, quote unquote, Eastern. Non-Abrahamic, yeah. Exactly. And so, I mean, part of, part of my experience of interfaith, I mean, mm-hmm. let's just sort of 
do this from a, a narrative perspective. Like my, my experience of interfaith has been like, this is a plate where I have to, I have to fight to be represented, right? Like there, there is no seat at the table for me unless I ask for it, right? It's mm-hmm. not, it, it may not be, if you're coming from a dominant position in society, you might not notice that this is the experience of people, but just in the way that there's racial hierarchy or class hierarchy, there's also religious hierarchy. And in this country, mm-hmm. it means that Christians are at the top and the rest of us are somewhere underneath that. Mm-hmm. Part of what I think is really helpful to, to see this is to understand that just like everything else, there's a history to interfaith. And a big part of that history um, is a political agenda in which certain groups are vying for positioning uh, within uh, a social context. And so just like the history of creating world religions was part of the colonial project and and Mm. a big push within that was to prove the superiority of Christianity. Uh, a similar a similar process unfolds in, in the creation of interfaith. And so it's no surprise when you understand the history that we have this table setting where Christianity has most of the seat at the table, usually informs uh, what the conversation is going to be, usually hosts, I mean, even just by space, usually these events are held. Uh, in Christian spaces, usually right. the positions of those who are leading these organizations are Christian, right? Like in every aspect, it's Christian dominant, but that comes out of a certain history. And I think if people were able to under, if people were interested in seeing what that history looks like, um, you might have a better understanding of how people then get marginalized or pushed out in these contexts. And I think, you know, for me, the whole point of doing that, to, of becoming aware of the inequities that are involved within the interfaith space is to then be able to imagine, well, how do we create something different that is actually equitable for everyone that we're in, in the way that we're intending for it to be, but may not be actually executing in the way that we want to. Thank you so much. <laughs> sure. I feel sort of, I feel a lot of things right now, but I mostly just feel really grateful that you've joined Mm -hmm. us and gave us your time and um, your wisdom and your provocations. Mm -hmm. Of course. It's my pleasure. I've been looking forward to this conversation. I mean, when I think it was after like five episodes of the first season, I was like, okay, one of my goals is to make it on this podcast. So (laughs) I'm I'm also feeling grateful. Yeah. We're ending 2022 on a high note for you, Simran. We're really grateful that you came on today and we're really grateful that you listened to the podcast as well. So. Thank you. Of course. Thank you all. I appreciate it. Saved by the City is a religion news service production. The producer is Jay Woodward and the consulting editor is Paul O'Donnell. We get production assistance from Elizabeth Joy Wyndham. Chaz Rousseau put together our look and Martin Fowler wrote our theme music. We are Roxy Stone and Caitlin Beatty. We're taking a break for the month of January, but we'll be back after Valentine's Day. See you then. Thanks Thanks for for listening. listening. We have a new bit of fan mail from Anita in Australia who says... You have to do an Australian accent. No. Mm -mm. (laughs) (laughs) Fine. Would you like to? (laughs) For... Nope. (laughs) I I tried it. Please, please continue. All right. Anita 